Oh, here we are. The last 24 hours, 40 hours for me have been pretty interesting, but uh, I'm glad to be standing before you live on Sunday morning preaching. Um, it's good to be here. It's good to be here on a rainy day. Um, I don't know. I tend to like sunny days, but today just felt good. It felt relaxing to have the rain outside as it came. It's kind of calmed my mind. But uh, today we're going to be in Jan- Daniel chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a very interesting story. Um, the passage of scripture we're going to be looking at today is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. Um, and I really think it is one of the more fascinating passages in all of scripture. Uh, we get a first-hand glimpse into the work of God in the life of one of the most powerful rulers to ever walk on the face of the earth. Uh, throughout the knowledge of history, there is much that is to be said about rules, rulers and the power of, their ancient, of, of the ancient rulers. And there is very little to be said about their weaknesses. That is because many great dynasties or kingdoms of the past throughout history have desired to be known only as great. It is a natural function of our human pride to try and uh, place ourselves in a position that only someone who is out of this world can actually be in. And for that reason, it is only the work of God in Nebuchadnezzar's life that brings him to do what he does in Daniel chapter 4, which is write about an extremely embarrassing and humiliating time of their life. Uh, let's open in prayer and let's jump into God's word. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this rainy Sunday morning. Uh, we thank you for the rain that gives life to the plants to grow, to be beautiful. Um, we just thank you for um, just a time where we can come and relax and look into your word and see what you have to say to us. I just thank you that you've given me the words to speak. I just pray that everything I say will be glorifying to you. Everything I say will be true to your word. Um, that our hearts will be enlightened, that we'd be encouraged, we would be rebuked if we need that. Um, and that we would just have your Holy Spirit working in us today as we listen to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's get a brief recap of where we've been in Daniel so far. In chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are brought to Babylon as exiles from Israel at the age of 15 or so. They are trained in the schools of Babylon for three years, and during that time they are faithful to God to follow his decree for their lives. They do not give in to the Babylonian customs, but rather they adhere to the diet that, w- that was according to the Jewish law. Um, they took a stand and found favor before God and before man. God caused them to flourish and stand apart from the other ex- exiles, and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that when they first come and are presented before him after the education. In chapter 2, Daniel is brought before Nebuchadnezzar to interpret a dream. All the king's wise men were brought in and told that they must tell the king the dream as well as an interpretation or they will be put to death. Of course, the pagan counselors could not do so. So it is only when Daniel and his three friends went before God in their full reliance upon him in prayer that Daniel was given a vision of the dream and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar, who had threatened to kill all the wise men in Babylon if they could not make known the dream and its interpretation, recognized that the work of God was in Daniel. And Daniel and his friends were promoted in the kingdom because of that. However, in response to what God showed him in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar, rather than worshiping God and bowing before him, bowed and paid homage to Daniel, and he looked at himself as even greater than ever before. For in the dream there was an image of a great statue, 
with a golden head, the chest and arms of silver, the middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet partly of iron and clay. Nebuchadnezzar's takeaway was that he was the greatest of all the kings and kingdoms that were to come after him because, of course, he was the head of gold. So instead of worshiping God, who was the one who had given him the dream and Daniel the interpretation, he erected a golden statue in great honor of himself. And he, in his pride and arrogance, he demanded that everyone in the kingdom of Babylon bow before the statue and worship when the music was played. When Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did not bow in worship, did not give in to the king's threats, but fully submitted themselves to God's sovereign will and to worship him alone, Nebuchadnezzar had, thrown them, had them thrown in the furnace. He was so consumed with his anger that he had the fire heated seven times hotter than it was normally heated. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood firm, and they, and they were saved by God. They had their full trust and reliance upon God in all matters. It was like a switch went off in Nebuchadnezzar's head when he saw the first person walking in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 26, he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. He remembered, oh yeah, these guys serve that God who gave me that dream and its interpretation through Daniel. That God must be pretty great if he did that and now this. However, rather than worshiping God, as the only God, as ruler over all, including himself, he just made a decree that you can't say anything bad about him or he'll be turn, torn limb from limb. It's probably not the reaction God was hoping for. God will be the judge of the living and the dead. And he is the one who will mete out justice, pouring his wrath on those who deserve it and giving grace and mercy to those who look to Christ and worship and submission and reliance for their salvation. Nebuchadnezzar didn't recognize him as such at this time. So this brings us to chapter 4, where we'll be spending our time today. Um, we will be going through the entire 37 verses, um, but I promise this won't take two hours. It'll probably take closer to one hour, but hopefully closer to 45 minutes. Um, these 37 verses have become quite short for me in the last couple of weeks because I've read them about two dozen times. But I'm hoping that they don't feel like 37 verses to you. Hopefully we can shorten that. Um, let's, let's read God's word together. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, and fa the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they should make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my gods, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. 
visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. Amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it, to, gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and this interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and, whose, and was visible to the end of the whole earth, and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the, the decree of the Most High, which has come up upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may, be per there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the, of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, or the king answered and said, is, this not, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by the mighty power of, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you will be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. 
He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew gray, grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I was blessed, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This account that Nebuchadnezzar gives both starts and ends with praise of God. This is a personal testimony of the work of God in his life. By starting and ending his account with praise in this way, Nebuchadnezzar is showing that God has worked in a miraculous way in his life. This is the same person who, you know, in the previous chapter we talked about it, had erected a 90-foot statue of himself in honor of himself to be praised. And here he is giving praise to the Most High God. Something has drastically changed in the last 30 years. From the time we first saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, here Nebuchadnezzar is plainly stating, look, God has done something in my life to change me, and he is the one that is worthy to be praised. Note what he says in verse 2. He says, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. He says it seemed good to him. It was his pleasure, if you read it in another translation, to tell of what God God had done for him. Nebuchadnezzar has an encounter with the Most High God, with Yahweh himself, and he wants everyone to know about it. Remember, he doesn't have to put any of this to pen to paper. He is the most powerful person in the world. He can have this information squashed, this story squashed. But he has had a life-changing encounter with God, and he's impelled to put it down on paper and to exclaim to everyone the works of God. Is it pleasing to you to tell the work of God in your life? Is it your pleasure to tell of his work, to tell of his salvation? How often do we shy away from sharing the goodness of God to others? We often are afraid of being scorned or ridiculed. We fear the way others would receive us or perceive us. We often think the testimony we have to share is insignificant to talk about the work of God in our life. Therefore, it's not worth being shared with anyone. The focus is often on ourselves and what we think and how we feel. But the crux of this story is that the focus should be on God, who he is, what he has done, and how great he is. How great are his signs and wonders? Our exclamations to our friends, our proclamations to our family, and the world is not inwardly focused, but outwardly, upwardly focused at God. God created us for his glory, and he wants us to glorify him with our lips. So Nebuchadnezzar gives praise to God. Then he gives us the account of why he is praising God. And it is with this account that we see an extreme, weird, miraculous story of God's sovereignty, grace, and mercy. 
Uh, in verse 4 it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Verse 4 is a statement about the way he felt about life in general. Everything was good. Everything was great. At this point in his kingdom, he had conquered all known enemies. He was the richest. He was the most powerful. His kingdom was at ease. He received the greatest praise from everyone. And if they didn't give him the greatest praise, you could just throw them into a furnace. Um, he had his way. His name was over everything. Everything was going great. It is in this time of prosperity and peace that God gives Nebuchadnezzar's rest and unrest. He gives him another dream that greatly troubles him. In verse 5, it says, I saw a dream that made me afraid, and as I lay in the bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. This is an echo of verse 2. This is deja vu all over again. Nebuchadnezzar saw the first time this happened that it was a message from God. And this vision had the same unsettling effect on him. As with the first dream, Nebuchadnezzar summons the wise guys of Babylon to interpret this dream. The result was the same. He says, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. These guys are probably thinking, where's Daniel? The first time this happened, he fixed everything. We, we obviously didn't know the answer. Same thing over again. It's like the group project where one person does all the work and everyone else is kind of writing on their coattails. But on presentation day, that person doesn't show up. That's probably what it was like. Because they knew, they, they had seen this before. They knew what was going to happen. But finally, Daniel comes along. It says in verse 8, at last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom the spirits of the holy God, gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for, me, for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Note how in verse 8 he says, at last. Even Nebuchadnezzar had grown weary of these wise men. At this point, he's probably pretty annoyed and thinking he should have done what he was planning on doing the first time, which is kill them all, right? It is clear what the king thinks of Daniel. Remember that this is a good 30 years after the golden image and the fiery furnace. Daniel, who has been the chief magician since he first interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, has formed a great report with the king. He has counseled him through these years. Nebuchadnezzar thinks so highly of Daniel and trusts him so much that he has an expectation that Daniel will come through. Nebuchadnezzar understands that Daniel is different, or is different, and the difference is clearly in his relationship with God. In verse 8, it says that Daniel has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Now, this translation of holy gods is one that can be taken one of two ways. It can be either translated holy gods, as you see it in your text, as the plural, or the holy God singular. Now, context really determines which way you're going to go with this. Nowhere in the pagan world is there a claim of deity, or a claim of purity or holiness for their deities. In fact, it's usually the opposite. The deities are messy. They're, they're ruthless. There's a lot of sex and promiscuity involved in the deification, or in the deities of, of that time. There is a distinction that Nebuchadnezzar is giving to the God of Daniel by calling him holy. 
especially when you consider the contrast between Daniel and the other magicians of inability. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that the insight Daniel has is true and comes from God. He turns from the counsel of the other wise men to Daniel because he sees that there is something true and different about him. The difference is that Daniel serves and worships the one true holy God. He understands that no mystery is too great for Daniel because he is relying fully on God. When rulers and those in authority turn to wise counsel and to, and to those who serve God and recognize and receive their wisdom and understanding from him, they will be led to truth. There are many who think themselves wise, who have the wisdom and insight of the world, but unless you are submitting yourself to God and being led by him, any worldly insight or wisdom is going to fall short because true wisdom only comes from God and God alone. So now we come to the dream. In verse 10 it says, The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens and its, lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. In this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a tree. It starts out as small and grows to be so great that it can be seen to the end of the earth. Now, in the ancient world, the tree was a symbol for kings, for rulers. A tree gives provision, nourishment, and protection. All flesh is fed and protected by this tree, Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream. The tree is so great that it reaches to the heavens and can be seen throughout the whole earth. It really is a sight to behold. Nebuchadnezzar would have gladly welcomed a dream such as this. It might be something that would boost his pride even more to see this and make him feel even better about himself. But it's what follows that really causes him his great terror. In verse 13, when we pick up, it says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Thus chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and let the birds from its, and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. This watcher or angel came down from heaven with a proclamation from God to chop down and destroy the tree. Everything that gave the tree significance, beauty and strength, was taken away from it. The beasts flee from under it, the birds from its branches, and the stump is left in earth with a band of iron and bronze around it. This magnificent, glorious, life-giving tree is reduced to nothing more than a stump. But it gets worse from there. Picking up halfway through verse 15, it says, Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, speaking of the stump. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The language changes from it, the tree, this object, to he. As if the tree figure wasn't clear enough to Nebuchadnezzar, this messenger from God is now clearly talking about a man. It says that the man, mind of the man is to be changed to a beast's mind for about seven year, periods of time, which is also seven years as most scholars take it. Boanthropy is a condition where a person thinks that they are a cow, a cattle, or in this case, an ox. 
it is marked by behavior such as grazing and sleeping outside in all weather and conditions in the open air like an animal. It would be an extremely humiliating existence for this king. I have a feeling at this point that Nebuchadnezzar knows the dream is talking about him. I think he knew that the dream was of his demise. His fears and his inquiry were not about who the dream was about, but what it actually meant. I think his fear was that it wasn't just any other nightmare, but it actually might be another one of those prophecies from God. Because in verse 17 it says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decisions by the word of the, of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to those whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. I think his fear was that it wasn't just a nightmare, but God might be giving him a message. In verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar again reiterates his faith in Daniel. Unlike the first time, when Daniel went away for some time to pray, here he is told the dream, and it appears that God gave him an instant insight into its interpretation. Verse 19 says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Try to imagine yourself in this situation. It's going to be hard, but just try to do it. Think about someone you love, maybe a family member, a friend, the person sitting next to you, crawling around on all fours on the floor. And they eat grass, they eat plants out in, outside, and maybe babbling to themselves, they're drooling, their hair goes long, they have no hygiene, their nails are growing long because they have no um, thoughts about that. Um, think about that existence happening for seven years. Think about the humiliation that would be involved for them. How bad you would feel for them in that situation. They're being subdued to a subhuman level. Daniel's reaction was one of alarm and shock. Because this wasn't just a thought, but a reality that God was declaring against this king. And we see from Nebuchadnezzar's reaction that Daniel considers the news to be very bad because he has to coax Daniel into giving him the bad news. But I love Daniel's response here. Daniel says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Daniel proved time over time that he was, one, uh, was a true man of God who truly trusted his sovereignty over all things. Do you think that Daniel secretly wished the demise of Nebuchadnezzar? Remember, Daniel was taken from his family into exile when he was a teenager. He was forced away from everyone and everything he knew and loved. Nebuchadnezzar himself was a cruel, evil, and ruthless man. He, had kill, he would kill people on the whim because he was unhappy. He would torture his enemies. He forced the king of Israel, Zedekiah, to watch his two sons killed before his eyes, before his eyes were gouged out. And that was his last living memory of his sons. And he was thrown in prison to think about that. Daniel had every reason to hate and revile Nebuchadnezzar. But instead, he showed him compassion. God was working in Daniel's heart in a way that he was able to show him this compassion. Daniel, throughout his life while he was in captivity, showed time and again that he fully trusted God. He knew that God had him where he was for a reason. He knew that God had him in this pagan king's court to advise him with wisdom and give him wise counsel. And it is clear from the way that Nebuchadnezzar speaks of Daniel that he greatly trusted and appreciated him. 
Daniel's response to Nebuchadnezzar and his view of him is how we all should respond to those who govern and rule us, especially those in power who we do not like. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul speaks of this. In verse 1 of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, Paul says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving made, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In chapter 13 of Romans, Paul also says, Let every person be subject to the governing and authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Daniel knew, and we should always remember that all authorities and rulers are placed over us, no matter how bad we think they are. God knows all things and is, in, and is over all things. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow or permit. God is not too weak to get rid of the bad rulers if he so desires. Daniel trusted God. And we should trust God when we find ourselves in a situation where we can clearly see that the, the wickedness in the rulers of our world or our nation. There are many who are following the wisdom of the world and ignoring the truism that comes only from God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In a world, a nation where most of our leaders neither worship nor even acknowledge God, we more than ever need to have the attitude of Daniel and the response that Paul encourages us to have towards our rulers. At Nebuchadnezzar's behest, Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. Daniel basically says, this dream is about you. Everything about this dream, it's about you. This is what Nebuchadnezzar feared. And this is why he called Daniel in to interpret the dream. Nebuchadnezzar had grown so proud as a king and tyrant of civilization. There was no, no one greater than him in all the earth. He had become so prideful that God decided both to teach him and everyone else a lesson. To show him that it is God who is in control over all kings and rulers. Who both gives and takes authority. In receiving this divine judgment, Nebuchadnezzar also received grace and mercy from God. Because in verse 26, it says of this stump, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, after it's been cut down, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. The stump of the tree remains protected because God knows that after seven years, Nebuchadnezzar will repent. It will take seven years of humiliation, but God will extend his grace and bring him to repentance. Daniel, in his care and compassion, is now in a place to give counsel and guidance to the most powerful person in the world. This is a person who could kill him in an instant if he so pleased. He calls Nebuchadnezzar out on his evil. Read verse 27. It says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You might not realize this at first glimpse, but it took Daniel a lot of courage to say what he said. Nebuchadnezzar could easily have turned on him in anger and killed him for saying what he said. But, he could, but Daniel saw God's hand in this situation, and he knew that God had him in this position to be an influence to the most powerful person in the world. 
How do you respond in a situation where God gives you a crack in the door? Are you willing to be bold enough and have the courage to speak? There are a lot of risks in calling people to repentance and to trust in Christ. It is not so easy to say something, especially to people you love, if you don't want to break or lose that relationship. Daniel's life was at stake. And this was a divine revelation of God to him and Nebuchadnezzar. And we most likely won't find ourselves in this type of extreme situation, but we have the Holy Spirit leading us. And Scripture tells us that we should be proclaiming Christ and be willing to risk everything for him. Daniel stepped into this situation with faith. Will you do the same when, when, when and not if, but when the time comes? So what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 28. All this came, about King came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. There's not much to be said about that. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by the mighty power, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Wow, talk about feeling good about yourself. Instead of repenting and turning to God in humility, Nebuchadnezzar's pride becomes so great, it becomes even greater. Nebuchadnezzar has multiple, multiple grand palaces in the city of Babylon. You have the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which are one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. You have multiple grand temples, with the, big, with the most impressive being on a 300-foot-tall ziggurat. The size of the city itself was impressive in the ancient world. And the walls themselves could have been considered wonders because they were so massive and impenetrable. Nebuchadnezzar was basking in the glory and majesty of his kingdom. And God had given Nebuchadnezzar 12 whole months to, to repent, to respond to Daniel's counsel and call to repentance. But instead, in these 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar became so consumed with pride that he was in essence worshiping himself in this moment of reflection, just as he'd done before. Aren't I great? Is there anyone greater than I? Look at my grandeur. Look what I have done. And the response from God was immediate. In verse 31 it says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Simply and swiftly, with a snap of a finger, God says, you are done. Judgment is upon you. The kingdom is taken from you. You were the greatest, and now you will be made the lowest of all mankind. You will be subdued and reduced to a subhuman level. Verse 33 says, Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar became this horror to behold. He became an example of what it looks like to be completely powerless. Everything that made him human, let alone a great king, was taken from him. And instead, you see the form of someone who is more animal than man. Finally, after seven long years in this state, Nebuchadnezzar turns to God in humility. 
In verse 34, it says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to all his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? All Nebuchadnezzar had to do in order to have his reason returned to him was rightly acknowledge God. God is the one who gives reason. And if we turn from him, he can take his reason from us. His life before his conversion or acknowledgement of God was an example of what it looks like to have a life of rebellion to God and what that can look like in its extreme. Let's read Romans chapter 1. This is Paul speaking in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that he has made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served a creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar, if you look at this list. He did not honor or give thanks to God. So he was futile in his thinking. Thinking himself to be wise or great, he was a fool. He did not acknowledge God, so God gave him up to a debased mind. You look at the list of sins of what a debased mind looks like in this scripture, and it looks a lot like Nebuchadnezzar's life. Leading up to this point, Nebuchadnezzar was already in this state before God even lowered him to this subhuman level. And yet God made him an example of what it looks like when he takes away all his reason from you. He said to Nebuchadnezzar, you want to know what it looks like when I take away the remnants of my restraint, of my wrath? Look at you. How can you say that you've made yourself great? 
and even taking away his reason, God was still gracious in that he spared his life and he allowed him to come to repentance and come into rulership of his kingdom again. Nebuchadnezzar looked like this while still receiving grace from God. What would life look like if God didn't extend common grace to us? Common grace being the grace that he extends to all of creation, which is marred by sin. He says grace that is given to all existence so that, not, so that we, in order to not completely let sin run rampant and make total destruction of everything that he created. God is gracious to us all, whether we recognize him or not, and that we have breath in our lungs, let alone the food on our tables or a roof over our head. But God didn't just extend his common grace to Nebuchadnezzar. I believe from what we read here in the testimony that Nebuchadnezzar gives that he extended his special grace to him. This is the kind that leads to salvation. This is the kind of grace that God gives us to turn our heart toward God in repentance. We don't know for sure whether we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven one day, but it sure seems like we will from the words that he says and the testimony that he gives. Picking up in verse 34, it says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and do according to all, the, to all his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the high king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar had a new perspective on God. He understood that his own kingdom was mortal and recognized that God's kingdom was immortal. He understood that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. We are nothing, and all who dwell in heaven, and all who dwell in heaven with God are nothing before the throne of God. He sits as ruler over all things, and nothing comes to pass without his decree or permission. No one can stand or sit before him in the seat of judgment. But God is the one and only true judge and king over all things. God is the one who raises rulers, and he is the one who puts high people in low positions. Nebuchadnezzar had a right theology, finally. He finally understood God, and he finally worshipped God. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar didn't get it. He bowed and paid homage to Daniel. After the incident of the golden statue and the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar still didn't get it. He continued in his sin. Here, Nebuchadnezzar finally understands who God is and who he is. He, was, he has a correct creature, creator view of God. He praises and extols and honors the king of heaven. It seemed good to him, if we go back to verse 2, to show that God had done what God had done and exclaimed his praises. God, who was sovereign over all things all the time, showed up so clearly to be in control of the man who thought he had control the world. God shows up in the person of Jesus in a way God shows us in the person of Jesus that he doesn't just have control over history 
But he also has control over sin and death. He has absolute sovereignty over eternity. In Ephesians chapter 1, I know I'm doing a lot of Paul today. Um, maybe it's because I read him the most, so I, I think of those scriptures the most. But in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches and glorious of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the unmeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the one who is sitting on the throne ultimately. Christ is the one who reigns over all things. Our hope and our eyes are fixed on him. As believers, we have this rich and glorious inheritance in Christ because he is our hope. All the powers of the earth, all the powers of the spiritual world, any decision that is made, any ruler that is in power, every catastrophe that happens and comes about sits under the rule and judgment of God. This world is marred by sin and sinful people. We don't have to look any further than a mirror to understand that it is true. But Christ has defeated the sin and death. He rules in heaven and one day he is coming back for his church to make all things new. Our hope is in God, not in the circumstances or people of this world. Do we trust in him in everything? Now this is the second time I've preached a sermon in the last 48 hours. Um, I came here yesterday to record it with Reed and Elizabeth who helped with lighting. Hopefully it looks better now because there's more light. Um, thanks Reed and Elizabeth. Um, this past week, I woke up at 5 o'clock every morning to get two hours of sermon prep in uh, before I went to work. And yesterday, I woke up at 4 a.m. to write the sermon so I could preach it yesterday afternoon and record it. And I did everything. I recorded it. I edited the whole sermon. I put lyrics in it for the music so that you could just watch the lyrics on the screen. And then my computer decided to not do anything. And that was the only place the videos were. The editing was anything. I couldn't... I couldn't send Tim the file, the video, like original video files. I couldn't get him off the computer from a hard drive. I couldn't airdrop it into Leslie's computer. I couldn't do anything. Um, it's ironic because as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking of how I was going to do my introduction. I just kind of wrote a line down. And I wrote something like a, of a personal testament of, like, I've learned to, like, trust in God's sovereignty and recognize him as sovereign over things, and he's given me peace. And it's really ironic that yesterday evening, was, I was just struggling, trying to get this, and just really frustrated and annoyed and kind of angry. And I was just, and I thought about the fact that I was going to write that as like a personal testament. I'm like, geez, God, you just brought me low. You know, you didn't make me a beast in the field like Nebuchadnezzar, but man, like I did all the prep work that I needed to do. I felt good about the way, the way it went yesterday, all the music recording, all the sermon recording with Reed and Elizabeth. You know, I felt felt like this was one of the more prepared I was for preaching on a Sunday. 
and I wasn't, so I'm humbled. But uh, the reason I say that is because, you know, even in our day-to-day -day life, just a simple situation like that, it's so easy to get frustrated um, and think that God is not in total control. Because when we get annoyed and frustrated and those things really eat at us, that just shows that we're not truly trusting that God has a reason and a plan for it happening. God allowed it to happen. And so hopefully that's uh, my personal testimony of learning of God's sovereignty. Well, it wasn't that I feel at peace with God's sovereignty, but that he taught me a lesson this week. So um, thank you for Sarah for uh, helping with music, though, because preaching a almost hour-long sermon yesterday and then today is hard to do for a voice and to sing. So I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, let's go to communion now. Let's uh, turn before God in prayer. Um, and then we're going to sing a couple more songs. Dear Lord, um, we just, we thank you for giving us such a crazy example in King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, for lifting Daniel up to the position you lifted him in that kingdom. Not just to show the nation of Israel in exile that you're in total control and you're sovereign over all things, Lord. But to show us that you are sovereign over all things. Lord, you ultimately did that when you sent Jesus to the cross. When you sent him to die and to rise again. It was your plan, Lord. It was the plan of God the Father and Jesus submitted himself to your will. Lord, we just thank you for the plan of salvation. That not only allows us to come before you and worship and praise, but allows us to live in peace, to have peace of mind. When things seem out of control, when things seem chaotic, when we don't trust those who are leading us. Whatever it might be, Lord, we just thank you that you're ultimately sovereign and you're in control and that Christ came to the cross to die for us. That our hope isn't in the messiness of this world. Our hope isn't in the chaos of our lives. Trying to write a sermon and have it delivered well and have things go smoothly. Our hope isn't in how we feel about things, but our hope ultimately lies in Jesus and what he did for us. We have an eternal hope in Christ. Uh, we praise things in Christ's name. Amen.